When you think about Jesus' death, he's alienated um, from his own people. His, most of his close friends, they abandon him. Um, he's killed by this, this uh, massive power, Rome. And um, not only that, his death seems, it seems premature. Um, it's tragic. In fact, it's, it's disgraceful. It's most shameful because it's a crucifixion. And as we know, crucifixions were the most shameful, the most degraded forms of execution that there could be. Only for the worst of the worst criminals. And not only that, you were stripped naked. And imagine you're stripped naked on a cross and everyone's just looking at you. And so why would anybody look at Jesus? Why would anybody look at the way his life ended? Why would you? Seeing him die that way, seeing him naked on a cross. Why would anybody look at his life and say, you know what? That message, that, that's for me. I, I want, because the way that guy died, the way at the end, I, I want to have what he has. Because the only possible answer when you look at him is nobody, nobody would have followed him. You don't look at the cross and say, hey, it's a badge of honor. That's, that's a way of peace, a, a way to blessing. You just don't see it that way. Yet, in spite of that, the early Christians, you know what they did? They took the cross and they said, that's going to be our emblem. That's going to be the sign of who we are. Cicero said the word uh, crux, beginning part of crucifixion. The Latin word for cross was a swear word. And so imagine um, a four-letter word, like the blankety-blank church in Tampa, Florida. That sounds terrible, but I mean, (laughs) that's essentially what it was. It was a, a swear word. Why was this? Because everything was wrong about the cross. It represented shame, hostility, weakness. It represented defeat, utter, absolute humiliation. So why then did the followers of Jesus say, this is what I want in my life. I want the cross. This is the message for me. The only answer to this question of why would you have ever possessed, uh, what would have ever possessed them to pick up their cross was Jesus' explanation of the crucifixion. His own explanation of what it meant. John Stott says this, the great pastor in England. He says, The fact that a cross became the Christian symbol and that Christians stubbornly refused in spite of ridicule to discard it in a place of something less offensive can only have one explanation. It means that the centrality of the cross originated in the mind of Jesus. It was out of loyalty to him that his followers clung so doggedly to it. In other words, it would have never occurred to anyone in their rational mind. That's the life for me. The life of the cross. But Jesus explains how the cross was this transforming reality. It changed everything. And so we're going to look just briefly. And I know it says two messages. These are not two full messages just so you guys can breathe. It's okay. They're not, I promise. Jesus explains the message and the center reality of the cross when he institutes his sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And I just want to read you three verses or four verses here. So this was the first day of the festival of the unleavened bread. And uh, Jesus says, hey, I want you to prepare for this Passover meal. And here's 
what it says, verse, uh, Matthew 26, 26 says, While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and he broke it. Here, Jesus was the presider, if you will, of this meal. When you had the Passover meal, you had to have a provider. And normally within the family, it was the dad. It was the father who was the, provider, the presider of the meal. And so with the Passover meal, you didn't just eat the meal, you explained the meal. Someone was the presider and they explained the meal. They explained what was going on. And so many of you have heard these words. The the presider would say during the feast of the Passover, hey, this is the bread of affliction, which our fathers ate in the wilderness. They suffered so that what? We would be delivered. But instead of that, what does Jesus do here? He gets up and says, this is the bread of my affliction. This is the bread through which I'm going to bring you out of greater bondage. What is Jesus doing? It's remarkable. He says, look, years ago we ate this supper. Um, on the night before God redeemed us and he brought us out of Pharaoh's bondage. And I want you to know that tonight, I'm going to do something even greater. There's going to be greater redemption for you. We tonight are eating it on a night before God again, he's going to redeem his people. But this time, it's not going to just be from Pharaoh, right? Not just from some kind of political or economic slavery, but I'm going to do it from sin and actually to death Itself. And so when he gets up and he says, This is my body, he's replacing the ordinary statements of the Passover. This is the bread of my affliction. When he gets up and says this, here's what he's saying. And it's amazing. He is saying, in, in the most unbelievable terms, my death is the central and climactic moment in the history of the world. All the history of the people of God has been moving to this moment, Jesus is saying, right? Every return from exile that happened in the Old Testament, every deliverance from some tyrannical king, every substitutionary sacrifice of an animal, everything is coming to what? It's coming to this moment. Everything is moving towards this. And he couldn't say it in a more amazing way by using what? This meal. He could have done it in some other way, but by doing it with the Passover meal, he's saying everything has been pointing to me. This is the exodus of all exoduses. I mean, you retold this story, but now I'm going to even, I'm going to add, I'm going to make it even better. He, when you think about what Jesus says, and if you think about the entirety of the Gospels, this is the only thing he tells us to do over and over again. He institutes his supper and he says, do this in remembrance of me. And he says, do it over and over. He could have what? He could have said, I want you to reenact the Christmas, uh, the incarnation of baby Jesus in a manger. I don't want you to do that. Uh, I want you to reenact the spectacle of some of my miracles. He didn't say to do that over and over again. He didn't say to dramatize his life principle teaching 
or even his resurrection, what does he say? Over and over, he wants you to do what? And he wants me to do what? He wants this table to be in the center of our lives. Not on the side, in the center. It is the center of what he was doing. It is the central thing. I have nothing to give you unless you believe and understand my death. That's what he's saying, the Lord's Supper. Nothing. Nothing for you unless you grab this. His death is the centerpiece. Where are you? When you understand that his death is the centerpiece and it's the only thing that gives you life, ironically. There's a freedom that comes, but I know there's all kinds of centerpieces, right? On the tables of our lives and he wants you to just remove those and say, hey, look, let me be the centerpiece tonight. Let me, I I I want you to replace what you have been worshiping or eating of, and I want, I want to be what you eat from. Where are you? Where are you this morning? Or this morning, sorry. Where are you tonight? I always say this. We're, we're to celebrate on Easter Sunday morning, and we're to contemplate tonight. I want you to do that. I want you to be reflective. Jesus wants you to be reflective on your life and what this sacrifice actually means is it an add-on or is it the centerpiece? That's the decision Jesus wants you to make this evening. So if that's the centerpiece, his death, why, why though? Why, why did he die? Why did he, what was he actually trying to achieve? Right? He took a cup and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins you hear these words, right? These sound like the words of, it's, it's the expression of self-sacrifice, right? Of, of even substituting one's self. When you think about the meal, you think about the Passover meal of three parts, right? You have the unleavened bread. What does it mean, unleavened? It means without yeast. See, the, Egypt, uh, the Israelites didn't have time to wait for the bread to rise. They had to eat with their cloaks, uh, the cloaks tucked in. They had to be ready ready to go and leave. God was leading them. They were called to be prepared. The unleavened bread means haste. Second thing is you had wine. The last supper or during a meal, there were probably four cups passed around. If you turn to Exodus 6, you see there are these four promises. God is a, a faithful covenant God. And, you know, this represents his fidelity to you and to me. But what was the main course of the meal? What was it? What was the main course? It was the lamb, right? The lamb. Remember all the plagues? And you, kind of the ninth was the plague of darkness. And then both God and Moses had said time and time again, right? The refrain, let my people go. And so finally God said, okay, that's it. I'm done, right? It's going down right now. I have this one particular angel, right? Uh, and it's... Uh, their unique job to adjudicate, to, to reckon, to appraise, to actually judge, to bring justice. And so what God says is the oppression of my people in Egypt, it's done. I am going to free my people. I'm, I'm, going, to, um, I'm going to bring justice down. Politically, um, economically, this is all going to stop. However, when you think about what it does morally. What, what did God, 
What did this do morally to the people? Because the Israelites were the same as the Egyptians, as are the same as Westowners. It's, we're all the same. Remember what God does not say. He doesn't say in the 10th plague, I'm going to come down and I'm going to condemn these bad Egyptians and I'm going to save these good Israelites. He doesn't say that at all. You know, he looks at the Israelites and he says, I know you may be feeling sorry for yourself because of what Pharaoh's tyranny has done to you, but you know what? There's something way bigger going on here. There's something much bigger than just me freeing you from slavery. You, Israel, what you know what you've done? You've erected a golden calf. You did that. You have done all these things. Think about all the sins in your life that you've committed today. Envy, sloth, lust, pride, whatever. We all bring these. And so what are the implications for the families of Israel there? A family during the 10th plague where the angel of death comes is you would have to admit this, that you could not stand up in a courtroom. That all the accusations that your heart, the world, and the devil would make about you, you know what? You would have to say, you're right. You could not stand. We have to admit, you know what? Go and get the lamb. I know that's the thing God told us, but you, we have to go get a lamb. Because the angel of death is coming, and he's the judge, not only for the Egyptians, but the Israelites. So go get the lamb, and take the blood of the lamb, and put it on the doorframe. And um, that's the only way we have a shot. Because either there's going to be a dead kid, or there's going to be a dead lamb. That's what God was saying. Every Israelite firstborn son would have to say, you know what? That lamb died for me, if you were still living. He would have to say that by implication. And so imagine Jesus picking up this bread, this bread of affliction during the Last Supper. He picks it up. And, you know, we do this once a month at Westtown. And we have this meal. And we have this kind of small meal where we take a piece of bread and we have a little bit of drink. And still, the question is remaining where's the main course? What, where's the main course of this meal? Like this is, the, this is the meal of Jesus. He is the presider. And the question is, is hey, um, where is the lamb? And Jesus doesn't point in this. He doesn't refer to it. Here's what we do know, is that Jesus is the lamb. The Old Testament, in the Old Testament, does God really say that the firstborn children are saved because a bundle of wool was killed? No. Jesus says, I am the substitute. He says, I am slain so that you don't have to be. I am your main course so you do not have to be judged. I will be judged for you. And the angel of death passes us over because the lamb, the main course of the meal was slain. That changes everything. Jesus is like this mother hen. He is like this this mother hen and the wings are covering us. No matter what comes, fire, you know, any storm that comes, we are going to be covered by the grace of Jesus. And so 
Here's the point of that, though. If Jesus died, and unless he died and it was a substitution, unless he died in our place, unless he died to take our sins away, in order to save us because we couldn't save ourselves, that had to be the truth. Because any other reason is his death is absolutely ridiculous, if you think about it. It's dumb. It's awful. You know, a lot of people in our society, in our, in our city here will say this. You know what? Uh, there are many ways to God. I believe all good people can reach God. Christians can reach God if they're good people. Everybody who is a good person can get to God. Well, wait, there's nothing good about Christianity unless what? Unless Jesus is the only way in. Jesus' death on the cross, unless it's the only way in, unless there is no other possible way for us to get God, get to God, his death is terrible. It's dumb. It doesn't make any sense unless he is our substitution. It's either, either Christianity is based on, as we see here, the centrality of the, of the cross, or it's, you know, um, it makes no sense. God is saying to us through this, God is saying to the world, I know you want to lump me in with all the other great religions, with Buddhism and Islam and, you know, Hinduism. And whatever other religion there is. But you see with me Jesus says it's all or nothing. Every religion says the covenant is based on your commitment with me. All the other religions say you have to be committed in order to get to God. And ours is the only faith that says this. No, no. It's God's covenant faithfulness. And and it's that truth And his commitment to you that makes our faith sing. So either what? Either Christianity is the inferior religion. It's the inferior faith. Because it makes no sense that our Savior would need to die. And he wouldn't die a a pointless death. He went to his very death to be our substitution. And if that's... If that isn't the effect, then we are the most inferior religion there's ever been. It makes no sense. But if it's true that this man, this God, would be perfect God, perfect man, and the perfect substitute, then it makes our religion, our faith, superior to all others. No greater love than this, what? That you would lay your life down for a friend. That our faith is personal. We can't help what Jesus did. We don't have control over what kind of faith we have. Jesus defines it. It's what he claimed. And so we know that the average modern American would say, I hate this all or nothing thing that you Christians do. I hate this all or nothing proposal that you guys, that you Christians do. I can't stand it. That's what the average Christian or the average American will say. They want to move Christianity into an option. And not the exclusive way. But Jesus says, no, this blood was poured out for you and for me. I died for you and my death is meaningless. In fact, it's wicked unless what? It's the only way that you and I can be rescued. Where are you? 
Jesus puts it in the middle of all the events in the world. It's the centerpiece of all historic events. And then he says, now look, the point of this central event is so that I am your substitute, so that you are free. I am the presider of this meal, Jesus says. I am the host, and I want to tell you this story of love and of grace for you. And so here's what I want you to do, disciples. After he just got finished saying, I know there's one of you that's going to betray me. Of course, that was Judas. He says, I want you to come, and I want you to rest in my meal. I want you to be sustained, and I want you to grow through coming by faith and eating right, the bread, And the wine or the juice. I want you to be sustained by that. Where are you? We are walking now in this kind of Monday, Thursday service for you to have a very personal time of reflection. And the way we have it set up is we have three different stations in the back. And we would like you to come and take... um, Take a piece, rip a piece of uh, bread off the loaf, and then we want you to dip it into uh, the juice and then to eat it. And come back, sit down, have a time of contemplation. We also are going to have opportunities for you to just come up here. Some of you need to come up here. And you need to kneel before this cross, and you get right. I mean, we're walking to Easter Sunday, and you have been running. You've been kind of, right, just on the outskirts. And, and you don't want to face him. You don't want to see the love because you're so, you're so nervous that condemnation will fill your heart. And what Jesus says is the exact opposite. If you will come and let go, I will give you freedom. That's what we talked about on Sunday. So where are you? Jesus is our host and is for the family. If you haven't professed faith in Christ, we want you to do that tonight. If, you've, if you are a skeptic or you are curious and you've never professed faith in Christ, we want you to not eat. Because you, this isn't to exclude anyone, but you're not in the family. And the family is eating, and you know, we want you in the family, but the, the requirement is faith. That Jesus is the Savior and Lord of all. And if you haven't made that commitment, you're not in the family. And that is not meant to exclude or make you feel less than. It just is what it is. Jesus said, look, I don't want people eating this meal. And Paul reinforced that. If you're not in the family, but I want you in the family. So he would ask that if you don't know him personally, that you would refrain, that you would not come and partake. But this table is for sinners, right? This is not for perfect people. This is for the beaten and the broken, and the bruised, and you come and you eat, and you feel the love and the grace of Jesus that's represented here at this table. Here are these words of institution. It's this, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup. Blood had to be shed for the remission of sins. He said, this is the cup. This is the cup of the new covenant. Take and drink. Before we go and receive the Lord's Supper, let us pray together and ask God to be with us. Father God, this is the only ordinance or sacrament that you told us in our sanctification to do over and over and over again. You call us to remember because we forget. We have bad memories. 
And it's hard to look at our sin, God, but you call us to. May we remember and know all that we are saved from. You say your grace is enough for all the past sins, all the present sins, and all the future sins. And that is mind-blowing. May that free us up. May we feel the weight, the gravitas of all our sin. And may we come humbly receiving your body and your blood. And God, may we ponder and contemplate tonight what that means. And may we take Friday and Saturday and do the same thing. But man, God, help us on Sunday morning. Let us unleash the joy and the glory that is all yours and we get to participate in with you. Teach us, God. Form us. This is your holy week, God. Thank you for your love and your grace that we do not deserve. In your name, amen.